Uh, it's a blessing to be here. I guess this marks the official start uh, of my uh, working uh, together with you. But I'll be honest, it's been, uh, I don't know, it's felt like we've been a part of this family uh, for a little bit longer than just two weeks. Um, Y'all have made it very easy uh, to get used to being around here, get used to the Birmingham area, get used to all the road names that are all called numbers in some way, and I'm having to put all those things together. But y'all have told me all those things. You've let me in on it. We're very grateful for that. You've given us food. You've given us help. Uh, you've served us in so many ways, uh, and uh, we're extremely grateful for that. Um, man, I feel like I need to make a special shout out to all those who are reading scripture this month. <laughs> um, man, that was, that's, that's brutal, uh, but it's important. <laughs> It's important because uh, reading all parts of Scripture has its, um, well, it's, it has its purpose. Even going through genealogies and things along those lines. Those are things that the New Testament writers even feel the need uh, to go over and see uh, we should be able to find benefit in that. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be there in just a minute. We're going to talk about unity this morning um, and growth as an individual body of Christ, specifically here in Birmingham at this Oak Mountain Church. Uh, being unified is a goal uh, pretty much all aspects uh, of life. A military uh, cannot function properly without being unified. A government will not last when its members openly work against each other. We admire teams that play as one unit, bands and symphonies that just seem to be creating one sound. Unity is the goal of every single classroom, it's the goal of every single marriage, it's the goal of every single family, and of course, it's the goal of every church, that we are to be unified. It's something that we're commanded to strive for. So how do we become unified? Well, I think the easy answer is a lot of work. That's what it takes. Unity takes Work And in the examples that I gave before, you can see the obvious ways in which work is required in a government, in which work is required uh, in a military, where work is required to be a part of a team or things along those lines. Fortunately for us, though, as Christians, unlike the ever-changing scheming and tactics of warfare and, and sports, unlike the shaky foundation that is man's opinion in government, we have God's Word to provide us insight on how we can become unified and how to work towards that goal. In Ephesians 4, well, Ephesians 4 is pretty much like the standard on unity. You can go through 1 Corinthians and read a lot about that. But Ephesians 4, what Paul is doing there, considering he spent the majority of the letter talking about revealing this great mystery, this mystery that now Gentiles are being accepted into the fold, and now, Jews, you are going to have to live with and work with people that you have spent years and years and years purposefully distancing yourself from. So the fact that they're being brought together, it's going to require a little bit of insight on how to make that happen. Well, the first three chapters are kind of speaking theoretical. Chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, he gets practical. And as he begins that section of Scripture, he begins talking about the unity that they were to have. He starts talking about the unity of the Spirit. i got to turn this on. He starts talking about the unity of the Spirit. This unity that we are encouraged to preserve, meaning we've been given it. We have it. We have the unity of the Spirit, and we are told to preserve it. This unity is something 
It's like every Christian is kind of reborn into. Uh, that if you've been baptized into Christ, then you have this unity with everyone else who has been baptized as well. That you have the common belief in these seven one statements that are listed in verses 4 through 6. And that you share in the blessings that come with those beliefs. And that you share in those blessings with all other Christians. Whether you're around them or not, wherever they are, whoever they are, and whether you recognize them as Christians or not, that we have this unity of the Spirit that has been given to us that we are called individually to, with the proper attitude, preserve this unity. However, collectively, is this unity of the Spirit something that we've worked for? No. Did we work for one Lord? Did we work for one God? Did we work for one body? No, this is something that's been given to us. And with diligence, we are to preserve it. But if you've read through Ephesians 4 before, then you know later on in Ephesians 4, he starts talking about another type of unity that's listed. There are two different types. One, the unity of the Spirit, as, as is mentioned on the screen right there. But there's also the unity of the faith in verse 13. That we are to attain the unity of the faith. Attain, meaning we don't have it. And we're striving to have it. Unity of the Spirit is something that we have that we're preserving. Unity of the faith is something that we are striving to attain. That unity of the faith, I believe, is referring to, anytime the faith is mentioned, is the Word. We have this unity in the Word of God. Now, does that mean that we all know the Word the same as everybody else in this building? Well, no. That's not the case. We have new Christians who maybe are completely new to church in general, completely new to the Bible, and so their understanding of the Word is going to be different than somebody else's. And does that mean that every single person here has the same beliefs on how to interpret different texts in the Bible? I don't think so. But what I do think is being encouraged is that that's something that we're trying to attain. That we're going to be openly discussing God's Word. And we're going to be openly discussing it with one another, even when we have differences of opinion in certain texts. And we're going to strive to attain that unity. And I want to uh, speak about this uh, for some time uh, this morning. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, he starts listing out uh, a sequence of sorts. Read with me in Ephesians 4, beginning in, in verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Then skip down to verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In these verses, Paul is laying out this sequence, but at the end of these verses, he starts talking about the church as a body. And what a perfect description 
of the church. Because a body has a lot of different parts, right? A lot of different parts that look totally different than other parts of the body and actually serve totally different functions than other parts of the body. And yet, each part of the body all has the same goal of having the body operate the way it's supposed to in a healthy manner. And as I look at the audience right now, I see people, members of this body at Oak Mountain, who look totally different from the other person. And actually, or have different personalities from one another, act very differently than other people. And yet, we all have, or are supposed to have, that same goal as a body to work with one another. To serve the ultimate function of serving the head of the body, that is, Christ. And so what an apt description of the church that is, of the body. But at the end of this passage, uh, Christ, or, or Paul talks about Christ being the head of this body. Christ as the head of the body. It says in verses 7 and 8 that Christ gave gifts to serve within this body, to serve a function. He lists five different gifts there uh, in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I want you to keep your finger in Ephesians 4, but I want you to flip a few books prior to Ephesians into Romans. Take a look at Romans chapter 11. Again, keep your finger in Ephesians 4, but look back with me at Romans chapter 12, excuse me. The book of Romans talks about a lot of the same things as Ephesians, and in large part, a lot of the discussion in Romans is about that Jew and Gentile relationship, just like in the book of Ephesians. And, as, and, and, and like in the book of Ephesians, the first 11 chapters of Romans is kind of talking about the theoretical stuff, while in chapters 12 through 16, it gets much more practical. And just like in Ephesians, right when he gets into the practical, he starts talking about the body of Christ the church, and how it is that they function. Read with me in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. It says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ." and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Paul lays out, Again, he's talking about the body and how we are members of the body of Christ. And as members, we have been given gifts from Christ. And he lays out those gifts here. He, lay, he lays out seven different gifts. The gifts of prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and mercy. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but go back to Ephesians chapter 4. I promise that's the most flipping back and forth that we're going to do. But go back to Ephesians chapter 4. I want us to continue to see this sequence that Paul is laying out. You have Christ as the head. And Christ has given members of the body these different gifts. And we laid them out here. But for what purpose? Well, the reason he gave these gifts was to equip saints for the work of service. And this is where the real growth, the real strength 
of the body begins. Look at this passage. Look at all the different things that come as a result of equipping the saints for the work of service. You have the building up of the body when this happens. You have the attaining to the unity of the faith when this happens. The knowledge of the Son of God. Maturity. Like we're not people who are being tossed to and fro because we know the Word, we know the doctrine, and we can take confidence in that. And not just any type of maturity, but maturity to the fullness of Christ. Look at all that happens, all of this growth that happens when saints are being equipped and saints are getting to work. When you see uh, this combined, uh, Ephesians 4 combined with Romans 12, I hope you see that the unity that we strive for as a congregation breaks down if we neglect this middle part here. If we are no longer trying to pass down the faith, and not only that, but trying to equip other people with the gifts that they have, and to work within the body, there is no growth. The truth of Christ being the head can exist, and that's great. And Christ can give us gifts, and that's great. But if we do nothing with that truth, and we do nothing with the gifts that have been given us, nothing is accomplished. There's no unity of the faith, there's no mature man, and there's no growth in the body. So how is it that we do not neglect this part of the sequence? Well, i got three things that I want to point out. Uh, quickly this morning, uh, and hopefully we can, we can all be inspired to work more within the congregation, to see the equipping of the saints and the work of service and the importance of that. So if we're going to work to unity, if we're going to work to growth, I believe the first thing we need to see is that we need to value each gift that Christ has given the church. Every person in this building who is a member of this local body must work in the body. But what I want us to see is that we must value each, uh, or we must value what every joint supplies, to use the language that Paul uses. We must see the value that every person provides. And we need to create an environment that develops these gifts. We need to be, uh, we need to be equipping the saints for this. And then ultimately, we just need to get to work. That's really what it comes down to, is that we, we are all willing to work. Let's take a look at that first one, valuing the gifts. I want to look through each gift that has been laid out here. In Ephesians 4, uh, the first two gifts that are mentioned are apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. What are apostles and prophets? Well, I believe Ephesians 3 actually provides a little bit of insight uh, to that. Apostles and prophets here, I believe, is referring to those, as far as prophets are concerned, those who have received direct revelation from God. And apostles, the same, but have also seen the risen Lord. I think that's what he's talking about here in Ephesians 4. Look back with me in chapter 3. I want to prove that for, for just a second. As Paul is talking about this mystery that's been revealed to him, he talks about that revelation coming through the Spirit. Look at, uh, look at verse 4 with me. He says, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. I believe he's referring to in Ephesians 4 in Apostles and Prophets, those who have received direct revelation from God. So how does this apply to us? How are we going to value those who have direct revelation from God? Because I don't think that kind of stuff happens anymore. I think the Scriptures prove that. That the apostles we, we no longer have, and the prophets we no longer have, except we value them by the way that we value the words that have been preserved. 
by the inspired words that they have received from God and that we have in Scripture. And so we show them value by honoring that word. Now, I will say, the word prophet in some cases doesn't mean someone who receives direct revelation from God. The word prophet in other cases, we'll look at in Romans chapter 12, actually just refers to one who is proclaiming truth. But we'll get to that uh, in just a minute. Then the, the next gift that is mentioned is an evangelist. Now the word evangelist, uh, unfortunately, at least for me, uh, I hear more in a political context than anything else, like an evangelical or something like that. In, in the larger Christian world, and I use that very liberally, in the larger Christian world, I don't hear the word evangelist very often. Um, but the word evangelist literally means a messenger of good, one who brings about glad tidings. I have been brought in here to work with the Oak Mountain Church to bring a good message, the good message of Christ, to speak the gospel to other people. Now, I hear minister and I hear preacher a lot, and those are good. I, I, I nothing uh, against that, but I think what they're referring to is evangelist here. An evangelist is supposed to encourage the body. An evangelist is supposed to strengthen it through the good news of Christ, bringing that good news to the members, people who are Christians, but also bringing that good news to people who are not by bringing it out into the lost and getting other members to join in that. And we got to see the value in spreading the gospel. All of us need to see the value in that and show value by supporting evangelists, by encouraging them, by maybe even joining them in their work from time to time. Next one that's listed is a pastor. And this word pastor is literally uh, the word for shepherd, both in the literal sense, like one who takes after sheep, and also in the figurative sense. And in the context of the church, I believe it's being used as a synonym for overseer or elder, the same role uh, that's discussed in Acts chapter 20, uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Actually, in Acts 20, it's interesting that word for pastor is used, and in the very next sentence, the word for elder is used. Two different Greek words, but both referring to the same role in that context. And unfortunately, again, I hear the word pastor misapplied uh, a lot, and I don't think there's any real um, malice or any, any harm and intent in, in using it in this way. But when I became a preacher about a year ago, uh, I would say, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a preacher now. And they said, oh, you're a pastor. That's great. Well, okay. So I don't, again, I don't think there's any harm in doing that, but these are two completely different words that are showing two completely different roles within the body. An evangelist, a preacher, as we often refer to, is the one who is spreading that good news. A pastor is a shepherd. A pastor is one who is looking after the body of Christ and making sure that those, uh, keeping them from spiritual harm, as a shepherd would do for its sheep. A pastor is one of many at a local congregation, and at times that might mean teaching and, and preaching. Alan was just up here teaching us uh, before the Lord's Supper. That, that, that might be a part of what it is that they do. However, a shepherd or pastor is constantly monitoring the spiritual well-being of the flock and its members. And we've got to show them value. We have to show them value by supporting the things that they provide us. Like when they ask us to meet together as a body, that we are submitting to them, seeing that it is for our good, that we're going to come together and we're going to meet. Now we do that without neglecting our need to follow our chief shepherd, and that is Jesus. But we honor our pastors in submitting to them, 
as well. And the last one that's mentioned is teacher, and this is rather self-explanatory. One who is, who is providing, uh, or excuse me, who is teaching and explaining God's Word. And not everyone is supposed to be a teacher. Uh, James 3 make, makes note of that. But those who do have that gift of explanation, we need to show them honor and value by listening and trying to learn more from what they provide. Now, I'll be honest, these gifts that are laid out in Ephesians chapter 4, I, I have not felt as though they have not been honored. Or they haven't been valued or they haven't been respected. But I want to look more closely at the ones that are listed out in Romans 12 because, um, well, I don't think these are talked about quite as much as gifts from God. And I'll say, as an aside, if you struggle with, um, with how you fit in with this congregation, if you struggle with what your work can be here, and you don't really know what part you fit as a member of this body, I want you to pay special attention uh, to Romans 12 here. And as we talk through this, I want to borrow an image of sorts, a metaphor, if you will, uh, someone, uh, something that I heard from somebody else, but I think it really it applies pretty well here. I want, I want us to take this image of a dinner scene that's going on. We've got a lot of people who are gathered together at a dinner, and there's this waiter, and he comes in with a tray full of drinks, and as he's on his way over to lay the drinks down, he trips and falls, and all the drinks spill everywhere, all right? So keep that in your head. The first one that's mentioned is a prophet. Like I said before, I believe the context of Romans 12 indicates that the prophet here is just one who proclaims truth. One who is proclaiming God's word, not necessarily one who is receiving direct revelation from God, but who is proclaiming the truth found in his word. We need members within a congregation who are willing to proclaim truth, no matter how difficult that truth might be. And if we take that dinner party scenario, after the waiter spills all the drinks everywhere, the prophet, the proclaimer of truth, stands up and says, we got a problem. This person spilled all the drinks because they weren't being careful enough. Now you can probably feel uh, the tension there. Sometimes the proclaimer of truth has some difficult things to hear. And sometimes it might come across as a little insensitive. However, within a church, if we do not have people who are willing to proclaim truth and to point out error in other places, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, we will be a dying church that is being tossed to and fro, as it mentions in Ephesians 4. We need people who are willing to identify problems in our own lives and are willing to identify problems in the church. And you got the one who has the gift of service or the gift of ministry, as it's translated in other places. This is someone who doesn't mind getting their hands dirty. This is the one who, after the drink spill, they're going to come to that waiter and they're going to say, hey, let me help you with that. Let me help clean up. We need people like that in the church. Where anytime there is a job that is difficult to do, it doesn't matter what it is, whether they have the proper skill set for it, this person with the gift of service is willing to be there no matter what. Can you serve in that role? Deacons certainly serve in that role. I'm, I'm learning more and more about what the deacons do at this congregation, and they do so much that I don't believe we truly see and recognize at all times. But I don't think it's limited to just deacons. We can serve in so many different ways, serving other members of the body. Do you have that gift? There's a gift of teaching. As we mentioned before, uh, the, the, the teacher at this dinner party is going to be the one who, after the drink spill, they're like, well, you know why that happened, right? 
Well, it's because you had too many drinks on this side of the tray. If you would have been walking at this speed and evenly distributed all these drinks, then nothing would have happened. You could probably think of the people who want to explain the why uh, to everything. We need that. We need people who have the gift of analyzing. We need people who are able to see connections in Scripture that other people aren't able to see. And even though it can be kind of difficult sitting there, listening to them explain these things, maybe they use charts and graphs and everything like that, it's important for a congregation to have people who have that gift of explanation and use it to glorify God in explaining His Word. The next one is the gift of exhorting. Other translations use encouragement. I think that's a word we're a little bit more familiar with. This is a person who just seems as though bearing one another's burdens just comes naturally to them. And I hope you can picture someone in your own life who does, who is that for you, who has this gift of encouragement, a Barnabas type who is always willing to carry a load no matter what that load is. At the dinner scenario, when the person drops all the drinks, the, the person with the gift of encouragement immediately comes up and says, hey, it's all right, let's go get more. I'm going to help you bring the tray in this time. And we need people who are willing to carry loads within this congregation because if we were to pull every single person here and talk about the difficulty in everybody's life, that load becomes extremely heavy. But when we have a group of people who are willing to carry it all for one another, to bear one another's burdens, what you have is a congregation that is going to be strengthened. You have the one who has the gift of giving. The one who has and is always willing to give, no matter what that is. Now, this, this might mean that th these are the people who are a little wealthier than other people. People who have money and are willing to give in that regard. And I don't just mean what we do on a Sunday morning in the contribution, but they're willing to give to other members where they have need. But I don't think it's just limited to just people who have money. A giver is one who, no matter what it is they have, they are willing to give it to the other person. The giver at this dinner uh, scenario, after all the drinks fall, they're like, all right, next round's on me. I'm going to get everybody. Don't worry about it. Or if their drink was already filled and theirs, for some reason, didn't spill, they're pouring a little bit into everybody else's cup just to make sure that everybody has something. We need givers in a congregation. There will always be people in need. And while correction and teaching might be necessary in certain instances, we need people who are just willing to give to solve a problem. We need people in a congregation like that. You have the gift of leading. The one who pretty much asserts themselves to the leadership position at every single turn. You can, see, you can obviously see the danger in something like that, but I hope you also see the value in something like that. A person who has the gift of organization and can put things together and make sure that things are accomplished. After all the drinks spill, they're the ones who are saying, all right, you go get the paper towels, you go get the mop, you go get the placemat, you're going to get all the drinks, and we're going to have this party rolling. Everything's going to be great. I'm sure you can think of people like that in your lives who put themselves in that spot. And you know what? Sometimes that can be a little frustrating because it seems like it's always the same people who are in charge of everything. It's always the same people who are putting themselves in that spot. We need people who are willing to get things done no matter what it is that's happening. And I'll tell you what, those leaders who are doing a lot of different things within the congregation, they might need an encourager of some kind. They might need one who has the gift of service just to jump in and do it too. The last one is the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy. What a wonderful gift. This person uh, doesn't hold a grudge. 
They aren't seeking an apology. They're not seeking to correct. They're looking to comfort. That is their number one goal, is to comfort other people. Do you have the gift of mercy? The merciful one at this dinner scenario puts his or her arm around the waiter and says, hey, hey, don't worry about it. It's all right. It could have happened to anybody. You know, it's happened to me before, too. We need people who are merciful in order for us to heal in our times of distress. I hope you see, looking at all of these, the great value and the great need there is for every single one of these gifts laid out in Ephesians 4 and in Romans chapter 12. But also, I also hope you see that there's going to be some difficulties in these, right? Like, I would imagine the prophet and the merciful ones are not hanging out on Saturdays all the time because their approach to solve problems are going to be a little bit different. But they are supposed to work with one another. You know what they're not supposed to do? After the prophet comes in and says, you did something wrong, the merciful one should not be coming in and saying, hey, it's all right, don't listen to that guy. No, that's not what they do. The merciful and the prophets work together. Those who have the gift of serving tag team with those who have the gift of giving, and they work together to strengthen the congregation. But the gifts themselves, does that create unity? Do we suddenly have unity because we have these gifts? Well, no. We need to be equipped in these gifts, and we need to work within these gifts. We need to create an environment that properly equips and develops gifts. I want to give an example. Let's say... Um, I've, I've had Frank Sledge at my house pretty much every day the last two weeks. It's been wonderful. He's popped in. Let's say, you know what, Frank, I'm tired of all these different people coming into my house. I want to start doing this stuff myself. All right, I, I want to I do this stuff myself. I'm tired of paying labor fees on things that don't really seem that difficult. And if I just had the right tools, then maybe I'd be able to do it. And so, surprisingly enough, Frank is uh, elated at this. He's so happy, and he's like... Here, take these tools of, of mine. Uh, I come home and all of a sudden there's all these tools in my garage. Man, what a great guy he is. Except, I have no idea what to do with those tools. Just because you had the tools, does that suddenly mean you can do anything with them? Well, no, that could be actually rather dangerous. We have to know what to do with the things that we have been given. We need to equip one another within these gifts that have been given. And you know what? According to Ephesians chapter 4, the majority of the burden falls on evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those gifts that are laid out are, are laid out for people like evangelists, pastors, and teachers to help other people develop. In addition to teaching the gospel and proclaiming the word of God on a regular basis, I have been brought in here to help develop your gift so that you can see the way that you can work within this congregation. I am supposed to give you opportunities to work, to put you to work, to bring you alongside. Pastors are supposed to be spearheading these events, trying to get people more involved, trying to develop other people. Where you have one person who has the gift of giving, they're tagging them up with another person who could be developed in that. Teachers are supposed to be bringing other people alongside, teaching them to teach. A lot of this burden falls on the leadership within a congregation. But as I reflect on my own life, I can think of people who have helped me within my 
gift. Even shortly after becoming a Christian, when I was in high school, people uh, started coming up to me. And, and uh, I, I remember one guy, he, he forced me to write sermons. And I had no idea how to do that. But he would take a red pen to those sermons and he would help me. And it, and it hurt at the time, but it certainly helped uh, in the future. I, I hope that's the case. Um, but there's been people who have taken the time to help develop me. Is that going on here? Are we doing that? But the thing is, it, I guess it's a little bit more obvious when a preacher is developed because you see them on a regular basis up here in front of people. Or you see the development of one person becoming an elder. But are those the only gifts that need to be developed? No, we need to be seeking to equip others with all of the gifts that Christ has given. Those who are merciful need to be acknowledged. We need to show them value, but they need to be encouraged to show other people that gift. The ways that people give need to be taught to others. The tactful but bold ways prophets proclaim truth need to be communicated to others. And an additional blessing when this stuff is going on, when we are constantly being equipped and developed, it hurts a lot less when, when members leave. You know, it's going to hurt when, when some people leave this congregation to go work with another congregation. But you know what? After some time, there's going to be healing and things are going to continue as normal. And you know what? That's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. We can't be so dependent on one part of the body, be that an elder, be that a preacher, be that a giver, whatever it is, that when they leave, we can no longer function. The only way that we can no longer function as a body is when we are separated from the head. And that is... Christ. That's the only way that happens. We cannot esteem man so highly. But when this happens, members can leave and yet the body can still grow. Last thing I want to point out is that even with all of these things being true, we have to get to work. If we go back to that house building example. Let's say again, Frank led me, uh, gave me all of these tools and then he took me aside and he actually taught me how to use them and stuff. Does that now mean my house is suddenly fixed or built or whatever, does that now make me a, a do-it-yourselfer? No. I have to actually do it. I have to actually get busy. I have, to, I have to get to work. In order to attain the unity of the faith, in order to build the body, in order to become a mature person, both individually and collectively as a church, we must be willing to work. And you know what? In human history, there have been a lot of ways, a lot of failed attempts at unity. There's been unity by force, Still tried in some places where leaders use physical threats of violence uh, to ensure unity. Or they use fear or shame to make sure that people walk in line and do what they're supposed to do. Shame people who don't believe, look, or act the same way that others do. And then I think a more modern attempt at it is actually what, what I call unity by separation. Like, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. So long as we're not fighting, that means we're unified, right? No. No, that's not unity. Now, all of these are failed attempts at unity. All of these are the easy route at unity. Unity is work. It's not easy. And it's going to require patience and love. And not just from the leaders of the congregation, but from every single member here. Twice in, in Ephesians 4, Paul uses the word work. Verse 12, the work of service. Verse 16, the working of each individual Part. And if you go back to the beginning of Romans, we started in verse 3, but if you go back to verse 1, he kind of sets the context there. He says in verse 1, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That phrase, spiritual service, it literally means your logical 
worship. Like, this is the logical thing to do. I think what Paul is saying is in the Old Covenant, the logical way to worship uh, was to present the body of a holy and unblemished animal on the altar and sacrifice it. But in the New Covenant, the logical worship is to sacrifice yourself, to present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice. And that's work. That requires denying yourself. That requires carrying your own cross. That's a difficult thing to do. It requires love. Ephesians 4 and verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, building up the body in love. And then in Colossians chapter 3, I love the way that this is phrased. Beginning of verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Without love, there is no bond. Without love, we will eventually be separated. I hope we're able to see the sequence that Paul lays out here. I hope this makes sense. I hope we're able to see the importance of equipping the saints for the work of service. So if we feel as though we're not unified, we're not as unified as we should be, or we feel weak as a body, or we feel as though we're being tossed to and fro in different doctrines and things like that, perhaps we should look back at Ephesians 4. Perhaps we should ask the questions, are we valuing the gifts that God has given us? Are we equipping others within these gifts? Are we trying to teach other people? Are older men and women teaching the younger? Are the younger seeking to be taught? And are we actually working? As we close, I want to draw our attention to Ephesians chapter 2. As Paul is explaining this mystery, the acceptance of the Gentiles, he first explains what God has done for every one of us, the greatest gift that God has given us. Beginning in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. The greatest gift that we have been given is salvation through Christ. It is the gift that should shape us and should shape our approach as we look to be a unified congregation. In the same way that we are all created in the image of God and therefore we are inherently due love from one another, every single person who has been saved was once dead in our trespasses, but made alive in Christ. Every person who has died to sin, been baptized or buried with Christ, and raised a new man, to use the language of Romans chapter 6, every person who has done that has received the same saving grace. So as you think about that person that might be sitting on the other side of the building, who you don't really want to talk to, who perhaps you have some beef with in some regard, I want you to think about this. They have been saved by the same grace by which you have been saved. 
Let that be the beginning of our unity. The love that has been shown to us, may we show it to others. Let the fact that we have the unity of the Spirit and have been saved by the grace of God through Christ be our motivator as we strive to attain the unity of the faith with patience and love. If you are not a Christian, you do not have the unity that's described here. You don't have the unity of the Spirit because you have not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and be made and having been made a part of the body of Christ. But that can happen. God hasn't given us some hoops that we got to jump through. He hasn't told us we got to go uh, climb a mountain or something like that and find something there uh, in order to be saved. No, all we got to do is submit to Him, repent of the things that we have done. And submit our lives to Him. To be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And we can be saved, every single one of us. If you have need of that invitation, I invite you to come up now while we stand and while we sing.